Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Adrian Guest, along with my co-host, Devin Dito. We're back at it to deliver news, commentary, and humor in our weekly roundup episode. If you're new to the show, this is our way to keep you informed on news around you. If you're already a fan of our platform, thank you. We appreciate you joining us as always. We got plenty of news to cover, Devin, so let's go ahead and get into with our first segment where I saw that uh, Coach Deion Sanders is blasting some NFL teams while scouts from 22 NFL teams decided to attend Jackson State's Pro Day on Monday. Ten didn't, which prompted a response from the university's head football coach, Deion Sanders. And we're going to play a quick little clip for you, listeners, just so you can kind of uh, hear what he says. Yeah, and you guess what? That means 10 of them is missing. <laughs> and don't, don't think I ain't going to call you out. You're 10 that's missing. If I catch you at Mississippi State or Ole Miss, it's going to be a problem. That's all I'm saying. It's going to be a problem. Our kids are that good that you should have shown up to. But yeah, listeners, as you can kind of see from that clip, you know, he's or rather hear from that clip. He's calling out all those schools. And it's interesting because, you know, he's saying that, you know, you're probably going to see a lot of those schools at MSU, Ole Miss, and, you know, those because they've got more talent or maybe because they're predominantly white versus predominantly black institutions. But, Devin, I don't know. Uh, I just know that we probably all pay attention to this story so we can make sure to keep uh, our listeners uh, in the loop. No doubt. I mean, Dion is absolutely correct. I mean, this is but this is how it is, though, when you talk about college football and HBCUs right now, I think, you know, NFL scouts don't think that there is a rich talent pool um, amongst our HBCU schools that have football teams. So, you know, he's rightly calling them out and hopefully him being so vocal about it will maybe lead to all, you know, scouts from all 32 teams showing up and not only Jackson State's, you know, pro day, but we want to see them, if we can get them at every pro day for all of the HBCUs. Even if we just go to the good ones, that is progress versus only sending, in this case, 22 out of the 32. Um, But Dion is absolutely right to call them out because you're already in the state if you're going to go to Ole Miss or Mississippi State's Pro Day, it's like, why not just go to Jackson State's also? I think that's also where it looks like you just, you know, they're just, like I say, they don't, they don't believe that there's the talent there. But Dion and others would disagree with that. But we'll move on from that story and go to our next story here. And this is coming from Capitol Hill, where uh, Vice President Kamala Harris announced a plan on Wednesday that's intended to end racial and and ethnic discrimination in the appraisal of home values, which is part of a broader federal effort to address a wealth gap that systemic inequality has perpetuated. And so this plan contains 21 steps to improve oversight and accountability, including a legislative proposal to modernize the governance structure of the appraisal industry. And so appraisers help to determine the value of a home so that buyers can receive a mortgage. And just to give you some context um, that is recent, one Black homeowner in Indianapolis found the appraised value of her home went from $125,000 to $259,000 after she declined to state her race in her application and removed all family photos of of African-Americans, and she removed the African-American art in the home as well. So she basically had to whitewash her home to get a fair home value, Adrian. And I think 
I'm glad to see the federal federal government is paying attention to this because this has a direct effect on wealth uh, in the black community because your home is more than likely the biggest, you know, most valuable asset that you have. And so the simple fact that your house could be in this case devalued by $124,000 essentially um, simply by, you know, simply because it's owned by a black person, it's got black family photos and black art in it. It just goes to show you that there's still a lot of work to do in some of these different sectors, particularly when we talk about housing, um, when we want to talk about equality, it's not just getting people a mortgage, but we need to also make sure it's fair when they need to sell that house too. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that we've talked about several times, listeners, as you've kind of been following Devin and I throughout, you know, these two years of podcasting. You know, we've had an episode, you know, around black homeownership, and we've talked about it in our weekly roundups in cases in states like Florida and different places where um, home black homeowners are being taken advantage of because they are black. Uh, and like like Devin said, in this Indianapolis case, you know, the home was valued double because the, uh, you know, uh, homeowner decided to not disclose her grace. So hope to see that this uh, brings about some really good progress. I'm happy to see that Vice President Kamala Harris is championing this. I'm hoping that they're going to put her at the helm so um, she can get some good press because uh, I know she's been needing that and she hadn't had it. So what we're going to do, let's go to another topic here. The Mississippi Poor People's Campaign claims that Jackson's ticket arrest and tow program, a new initiative launched this year by the city's police department, is criminalizing poverty. The program sets up checkpoints where drivers in Jackson must show a valid driver's license, registration and insurance, or they are subject to arrest and having their vehicle impounded. Supporters of ticket arrests and tow say that the program is helping authorities get illegal guns off the street via vehicle checks. However, Holmes says it's in, says it instead negatively impacts the same people the Jackson Police Department says is trying to protect. According to the report, Jackson's 153 homicides in 2021 made the city rank as the highest in the nation per capita. So, Devin, I saw this, you know, it's in our home state. I thought it was an interesting story to kind of you know dive off into a little bit. I, I see where they're going with this. You know, this program has really good uh, intent. It's kind of like one of those things where, like, you know, if you don't structure the program properly, it, it can have some negative indirect effects. And that's what we're talking about. Or rather, that's what the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign is talking about, these indirect negative effects, because I know there are times where um there are some people who can't afford insurance and they don't, they just don't drive around with insurance. And some people uh, will not renew their registration every year because there's a cost to that. And I mean, there's, you know, I get the whole thing of maybe we're stopping guns, but maybe there's a different way to do this. Uh, or the, the, the legislation should be, if you don't have the ability to, to afford these things, Let's have some sort of program to make sure we can subsidize it so that way we're not penalizing you for not being able to afford these things. Right. This conversation and and debate sounds a lot like the arguments that we have about the way that traffic citations are given out in like bigger cities like Dallas, where they have quotas and they need to meet those quotas and they give out a bunch of tickets. And who does who's usually the ones who end up having to 
you know, pay those tickets is, is the poor people around the city. Like we, we know essentially traffic citations are a way to tax people, basically. Like you, you're pulling revenue out of the community. And I think, especially now that we've had a, a really, really in-depth discussion about crime and what drives crime, particularly when we talked about the homicide spike during the pandemic, we know we have a clear, uh, at least a clearer understanding that what is driving the crime is the fact that, you know, unemployment and not having the sort of economic opportunities um, is what drives crime to happen in a lot of communities. And so if you take that perspective, well, we're not going to fix that. It is, a, you know, while we understand that they're trying to fix the problem, it is from what we say, think and have seen the data, it's the wrong way to fix the problem. This is not going to bring homicides down in any real tangible way over the long term. You have to fix the economic conditions that exist in these areas. That's the way to bring down crime in a real way. You got to give people some economic opportunity and hope. And if you don't do that and you just say, well, guess what? We're going to ticket, arrest and tow your vehicle. Well, you've you've really done yourself a disservice in a couple ways because you're not only taking money out of their pocket. Now they're, they're less, you know, they have less money to pay for groceries and things like that. But now you've also ruined the relationship between the community and the police, because it looks like you're picking on the lowest of the low. Those who are struggling the most now have to worry about the police coming and taking their vehicle and ticketing them. Not to mention that I feel like this, the way they're trying, if they're saying that the rationale behind this or rather that the justification for this is that we're you know we're getting illegal guns off the street i just i I just feel like maybe that's just something that's just happened as like a bystander maybe because they were able to see guns or whatever but i definitely i feel like there's better and easier ways to target illegal guns uh, and gun trafficking than just stopping people at random checkpoints. Cause you, you I mean, there's going to be a lot of people who have their, you know, license and registration and insurance, but they still have an illegal firearm. And, you know, that checkpoint is just designed to check license registration and insurance. So it's like, you know, if, like I said, if your justification is illegal guns, I just think the whole program could be restructured to really help with that. Right. You're, you're exactly right. So hopefully, you know, we'll keep you updated as that story continues. And hopefully the Mississippi Poor People's Campaign continues putting pressure on the police department there to maybe rethink the approach um, about how they're trying to take guns off the street and bring down homicides. But we'll move from there. We'll go to our next story here, where uh, an anti-vaccine protester threatens to tar and feather Black Lives Matter streets. So a group that calls themselves the People's Convoy, made up of anti-vaccine truckers and their supporters, held a protest on March 18th in Washington, D.C., and threatened to vandalize the Black Lives Matter street. So according to the Daily Beast, the group was protesting vaccine mandates and other COVID protocols which have weakened all over the country in the past few weeks. And so an identified speaker said to her crowd, quote, what's going to happen up here in D.C., Black Lives Matter Street? We're going to take it back. He also called to tar and feather the street and all our delegates. So, Adrian, I mean, it's it goes to show you when you talk about these sort of protests and movements that have popped up, they all share a lot of different 
opinions and perspectives. And so not only are they anti-vax, but they're probably anti-Black Lives Matter and anti-critical race theory and a host of other things that we would say is helping to push the nation forward. And they would say it's helping to, to take the nation backwards and, you know, taking away their rights and different things. So I'm not surprised. You know, I don't think they'll be the last group that wants to go and smear something over Black Lives Matter Street. But the great thing about it is, is that whatever they do, it's going to be undone and fixed by the city anyway, which is sad if they have to take the time to do it. But it's just sort of indicative of the the petty mindset that a lot of these, quote unquote, people's convoys has. Um, You know, it's just it didn't stop at vaccines. That's my only thing about it. Like, let it just be vaccines. Why do you have to bring bring Black Lives Matter into it? You know, that's a good question. Uh, and I, I'm not sure why, other than the fact that I go back <laughs> to his statement, take it back. You know, I, I, I it, it reminds me of, uh, I, I think, one of your uh, uh, congressmen from Texas uh, that was talking about take back the culture. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I'm sure Ron DeSantis has probably said something like take it back. It's. I just feel like there's so many, mainly whites, mainly Republicans, <clears throat> who feel like they're losing something and, and they've got to take something back, you know, whatever that is. But like you said, because we're pushing for equality and equity for everybody, they feel that, no, we've got to take back what the system was, which the system was designed for white men in particular. Um, but you know, and, and overall white majority is what it was designed for. So, um, listeners, I hope we can, you know, figure out, you know, how we get around that and how we stop this whole, take it back, because what we're trying to do is just make it better for everybody. And speaking of making it better for everybody, I was, you know, really saddened to see that our, our medical, uh, industry and medical professionals are being attacked, um, especially after they have, just really diligently worked for us these past two years under uh, the pandemic and COVID, but medical professionals, researchers, and advocates for health equity have recently experienced unprecedented pushback from lawsuits and attacks on cable news to harassment and death threats. These equity initiatives are facing uh, are facing growing pushback from pundits, think tank researchers, and doctors, both liberal and conservative, who contended that the medical organizations have overstepped his mission of supporting healthcare professionals and is now embracing a woke ideology. Doctors and academics working on anti racist initiatives say they're exhausted and on the edge. In the face of this harassment, doctors and academics are demanding more support from their institutions and professional organizations and are strategizing on how to respond to the backlash and the trolling. So again, Devin, you know, it's sad to kind of see that this is what's going on, you know, with our medical professionals. I hope that we can, you know, get something that's going to be a little bit better um, because like I said, they are trying to just bring equity. And we have talked so much about statistics for our community, the black community, especially, but even if you look at the Latino and Hispanic community, there is a lot of risk factors that we have to deal with when it comes to our health and medicine. And if you're trying to build trust, like they are with, you know, building trust with the police community, if you're trying to build trust with the healthcare community, 
community. This is what they're trying to do with these equity initiatives. That's how to do it. But when you're, you know, threatening doctors who are trying to embrace diversity and beat these sorts of odds that we have as minorities, that's not what we're doing here. That's that's sending us back like you were talking about. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, I understand these conversations make people uncomfortable and COVID really exposed a lot of the racial disparities that exist within the healthcare system. So I'm not totally surprised that they're getting this sort of pushback because healthcare is something you don't really think about when you talk about racism. Like everybody points to the Tuskegee experiment as the biggest example of racism in healthcare, but it, you know, I think the disparities and the discrimination exist on a host of other areas within the industry. So I'm not super surprised that they're getting a sort of pushback. I mean, and it kills me too the use of the word woke. And so it's just, it just seems to be a catch all for things we don't agree with. <laughs> it's essentially how it's being used. Um, but hopefully, you know, they're continuing to try to fight back and clean up their name, but we'll keep you updated. Um, on that particular story as they try to, you know, make some headway against all the trolling and things that are happening. But to go ahead and wrap up our segment here with a, a good story here. So the, there's a list now, a list of names that are going, you know, to be possible replacements of Confederates and U.S. military facilities has been trimmed to 87. So if you may remember, back in 2021, the Federal Naming Commission announced that it planned to strip the names of Confederate leaders from from the U.S. military facilities, which is a decision that reached uh, they reached after the police uh, murder of George Floyd prompted a protest filled summer across the nation. So after a year of soliciting potential names from American citizens, the commission has narrowed that list down to 87 possible names for the facilities. And so some of them include names like um, from legendary African-Americans, um, slave liberator Harriet Tubman, military pioneer and the first African-American four-star general, uh, General Roscoe Robinson Jr., and also General Colin Powell made the list as well. Uh, he was, again, America's first Black Secretary of State. So very possible you could see General Colin Powell, you know, military base or something coming to you in the future. So definitely look out for that. So we're going to take our very first break. And when we come back, we're going to get into some more news. Get you, you know, we have a couple quick quick updates for you. So make sure you stick with us and we'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give a few dollars while you're at it. After all, the Black Agenda Podcast is supported by listeners like you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our quick updates. We just have a couple for you. So first up, you may notice that uh, any United, you know, American flags that you see around your community or your area are are going to be at half mast, and that is because uh, Madeline Albright, who was the first female U.S. Secretary of State, has passed away this week. So um, Albright was a child refugee from Nazi um, and then Soviet-dominated Eastern Europe who rose to become the first female secretary of state and a mentor to many current and former American statesmen and women. And she passed away on Wednesday from cancer, her family said, and she passed away at the age of 84. So 
sad to see that news. And another update here, another um, update from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has been discharged from the hospital after a week-long stay. The court said Friday, and this ended days of speculation about the 73-year-old's health after the court had declined to provide updates earlier this week. And I know there were rumors swirling, Adrian, that he could possibly have COVID. They said he did not have COVID. This was some sort of infection that he had this week, but it looks like he has been discharged and is back at home. So he's at least okay, but we did lose Madeline Albright this week. Yeah, that was some sad news. I saw that when I was at work, uh, walking by a little news ticker, TV, whatever. And that was Mm -hmm. definitely sad because I know uh, people look up to her. A lot of women did. Uh, I even know that, you know, I watch a lot of Parks and Recreation and Leslie Nope always talked about Madeline Albright. Um, I actually broke up with somebody almost because they didn't (laughs) know who she was. So. Uh, but yeah, that's uh, some good updates there. Let's go to another one here. Uh, President Joe Biden on Monday urged U.S. companies to make sure their digital doors are locked tight because of evolving intelligence that Russia is considering launching cyber attacks against critical infrastructure targets as the war in Ukraine continues. Addressing corporate CEOs at their quarterly meeting, President Biden told the business leaders that they have a patriotic obligation to harden their systems against such attacks. He said federal assistance is available should they want it, but that the decision is theirs alone. Um, I think it's uh, a good move, uh, Devin, that uh, President Biden is saying this. I think it's good that the government is doing it. I know that they're doing their part. So I think that CEOs should do their part. And we know that the Russians, you know, after trying to hack, you know, our elections and, you know, did hack into our, you know, some of the different things. Um, we know that they're capable and we know that this is what they're wanting to do. So uh, I hope that these CEO leaders or rather these business leaders uh, take advantage of these resources and listen to the president. I mean, definitely. I mean, cyber warfare is, is the next is now the new frontier. It's here. We know Russia conducts these cyber attacks all the time and they've meddled not only here, but in, in Ukraine as well. So the threat is real. And the thing that sort of scares me with it is that, you know, U.S. intelligence and, and the warnings coming from the White House and the president, when it comes to the Ukraine situation in Russia, have all been spot on. Whatever they have said has happened pretty much. So, you, you know, you got the warning here. They said Putin was going to go into Ukraine. He did it. They said, you know, he was he was trying to install a puppet government. He was going to try to do that. He just couldn't take over Kiev. So, I mean, I think we definitely have to take the warning seriously and understand that cyber warfare is real. It is here and it can have destructive uh, consequences if you do not um, take it seriously and and have the proper protection. So hopefully the companies do what they need to do to protect their systems. And also staying with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the Biden administration said on Wednesday that they have made a formal determination that Russian troops have committed war crimes in Ukraine. And the administration went on to say that it would work with others to prosecute the offenders. And so the assessment was based on a careful review of public and intelligence sources since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine last month. And so America's top diplomat said that the United States would share that information with allies, partners, and international institutions that are tasked with investigating allegations of war crimes and crimes against humanity. So 
Adrian, you know, stuff like this, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what we can do about it, I guess is my thing with that. I, I guess it's good that we've, you know, investigated and determined that they did commit war crimes. And I think even Biden called President, you know, called Vladimir Putin a war criminal. Uh, but at the end of the day, it seems like it's really more of an empty threat. <laughs> you know, unless we're going to put troops on the ground in Ukraine to stop these war crimes. Um, at this point, it's really just sort of lip service. Yeah, it is. Um, I because like you said, there's not much else. There's been I feel like there's been a full frontal global economic assault against Russia. Uh, mm. I even saw where like uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky was uh, chastising uh, the company Nestle for uh, still do, you know having some business operations in Russia, and they came out and said, you know, we're not actually profiting off of any of the business there. Uh, it's just still up and running. Um, so, yeah, I think this is something that, you know, yes, it's good. Maybe it's more symbolic. I don't keep up with as much on, you know, how this is going to you know do anything. But the only thing I know is that there's got to be some resolution soon. Um, you know, I know that, you know, President Biden is wanting Russia out of the G20 and different things. So I, I just hope that all these economic sanctions and all of this economic um uh, turmoil is going to change things, but I don't know. Um, who knows what you know what Putin is thinking? But we'll go to another story. Let's get out of Putin's head and let's go to some of our uh, heads of college kids. I guess <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, this is going to take us to California in a move that squarely places California's public universities at the forefront of the national trend to drop standardized tests. Cal State University system will eliminate SAT and SAT, uh, excuse me, uh, Cal State University systems will eliminate SAT and ACT exams from admission requirements, officials decided Wednesday. The California State University joins University of California, who last year eliminated the standardized test admission requirements at its undergraduate schools, which include the prestigious campuses of UC Berkeley and UCLA. Critics have long argued that standardized tests put minority and low-income college applicants at a disadvantage and pose a barrier to their admission. They have noted that wealthier students or their parents have the money to pay for expensive standardized test preparation courses that that help boost their scores. Um, great decision, Devin, from uh, Cal State and from you know the growing systems out of California. I imagine that most of their universities will probably start trickling down and and, and kind of doing this. Um, I, I, you know, listeners, I'm, you know, uh, in grad school now I'm doing my MBA. Uh, I know they're talking about mostly just undergrad, but just in what I'm thinking about, um, that there's a lot of people who don't go on to grad school or even go to school because they feel that they can't pass those tests, especially, um, if you're trying to get into a really good school, that's going to have the best network, the best program, put you in the best position to get to where you need to be. Uh, if you've got to have a really, really, really high uh, SAT, ACT score or LSAT score or something like that, 
it, it, it really just makes it very difficult for you because you don't have the money to pay for all of these tutors, all of these programs, buy all these books and different things like that. So Devin, I think it's a great move. And I hope to see that this is something that not only happens in uh, California and throughout the country, but throughout all levels of higher education, no more test requirements, just apply to our school. Uh, if you want to take the test to, you know, to boost your chances of a scholarship, by all means, do that. But we're going to really judge you based on your experience, who you are, how you can grow from our program and what you bring to the table. So good for them to do that. Yeah, I mean, I think overall, I think I, I welcome the move. I don't know how to feel just yet about not requiring, you know, like SAT, ACT scores. I do think there could be room to have those scores, but they, they can't be like, the you know, weighted as much as other things i think they don't matter as much as we thought they did but i do think there's like space for them because i mean you do want to be able to measure student success you have to have some way of measuring that because i do think this could be a precursor to eventually you know getting rid of gpas i think you will find we will eventually get to a world where you won't have a gpa you'll be measured on other things so we talked about uh, even in our very first one of our first episodes of the podcast about how uh, I think it was Washington was trying to find different ways to get students to graduation by not necessarily measuring, you know, the grades or credits, but having them take certain courses and getting skills and becoming, you know, uh, having a certain level of skill in certain trades and that being enough for you to graduate from high school. So we're, I do like the fact that we're trying to find other ways to measure student knowledge, but I do, I do think there is some room for us to have SAT and ACT scores, but we do have to also look at what composes these tests to make sure that they are fair. Like we have to understand that not everybody has been exposed to certain words and, and certain things. So you have to make sure that the tests reflect, you know, the, the environment of the people who are taking it, because that is a problem too. And that's why a lot of, you know, students from our community struggle with it because some of the scenarios you may see on an ACT course is things that they've never been exposed to. <laughs> you know, they just don't know those terms. No, that's um, pretty so it's, true. It's, it's hard to learn it if you've never seen it before. That's true. I, I definitely think that they'll, that the GPA will, ne- I don't think that'll ever go away. Cause I believe that whenever you drop the SAT, ACT requirement, any sort of standardized test, I believe that factor is, is probably going to be more important to where you're going to see places like UC Berkeley or Harvard or something like this to where you, if you don't have that 4.0 or you don't have that 4.8 and above, you need not in a pie, you know, kind of situation because, right. you know, and it's, and, and I did read in the article to where the universities aren't saying that you can't, you know, submit your ACT, SAT scores so you can still take it. Cause I would imagine if you do take it, you score well, like I said, that's going to boost your potential help. to get those merit scholarships. Um, so, you know, good that you don't have to take it to be admitted, but still might be a good idea listeners to do it uh, just to get some more money. No, I, I definitely think it's worth doing it, especially, like you say, if you do it and you score well, it can help your application. Whereas if you do it and you don't score well, it could be a detriment to your application to keep you from getting in. So I think that's a 
probably a better way to look at it. But we'll move on from that story. We're going to go to now Google, where they're now dealing with another uh, racist uh, culture lawsuit, basically, <laughs> is a way to put it. So Google, Google fosters, so there's now a Black woman um, who is alleging that Google fosters a racist culture. And this is in a lawsuit that she's now brought against the company. So she says that Google fosters a work environment that marginalizes Black employees denies people of color advancement and opportunities and ignores sexual harassment claims. Um, And this is according to other things that she said during uh, the plaintiff's uh, class action lawsuit that was filed against the company in California this week. And so at a press conference in San Francisco on Monday, attorney Ben Crump, there's, there's our guy, attorney Ben Crump and two former employees of the search engine behemoth detailed what they called a racist culture at the company that's headquartered in Mountain View, California. So April Curley, who is a former diversity recruiter that was hired by Google to lure Black workers from historically Black colleges and universities, she actually filed a lawsuit against the company, saying that during her six-year stint, she witnessed people of color, including herself, typecast into jobs with no upward mobility or passed over altogether. Although she brought in 500 Black young workers to Google, she was not promoted during her time at the company from 2014 to 2020. So, uh, AJ, you know, this is, I wouldn't say not surprising, but we do definitely know that a lot of tech companies have issues, namely, I think Tesla, you know, was accused of of racism within their workplace, and now you're hearing Google. So I think, you know, I'm glad they're bringing these issues to the forefront, and we're having these conversations about how we view Black tech workers, uh, particularly, and making sure that they're fairly compensated and given the same opportunities to move upwards. So hopefully um, there is something that comes out of this. I don't know what, but hope at, at the very least, she's bringing the issue to the forefront. And like you said, our guy, Ben Crump, he's at the scene. Hey, so. He's on it, man. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> we know he, he delivers results. So we'll we'll get something to happen. We'll keep you in the loop, listeners. But something that's definitely happened is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which uses the 10-digit number 800-273-TALK, which is 8255, will soon be referred to as 988. The goal is to reduce violent and deadly interactions between law enforcement and those experiencing mental illness. Many states do not have crisis response systems for mental health. In order to address this challenge, uh, there have been there has been bipartisan legislation to help states with additional federal funding and guidance on how to create a crisis response system that relies on trained mental health specialists instead of armed officers. More than one in five people fatally shot by police have mental illnesses, according to a Washington Post database of fatal, uh, fatal U.S. shootings by on-duty police officers. Since 2015, police have fatally shot at least 1,515, uh, excuse me, 1,560 people with mental illnesses. So um, a lot to be said about that. We've talked about that. We've reported on different cities who have these uh, response systems that we've, you know, uh, we're talking about within this article. And I'm glad to see that this is going to be something that we're, you know, doing on a federal level. Um, We have to put more money, you know, towards this. It's got to be a priority to say that um, with our reform to policing, there has to be a mental health component 
Um, you know, I, I get banning chokeholds and all of those sorts of things. That's a priority as well. But we also have to advocate for this part to say that we've got to have mental health because when you have officers or not are not trained to handle this, that's why you've got this one in five statistic here that we're talking about, Devin. I mean, that's that's exactly right. I mean, hopefully this will help take off mental health specialists under the, the, the duties of police officers. You know, we added that to them without asking them, hey, have you actually been trained to handle a lot of these situations that involve people who have mental illnesses? So, yes, I, you know, all for this change and hopefully this legislation um, gets passed so that they can get the proper funding um, to create this system and refer to it as 988 because we do know, um, even I think some police officers would admit that they would, you know, relish the opportunity to let the professionals handle a mental health, um, you know, situation that involves someone who's having an episode or anything like that because they are not trained to handle those types of things. And so um, the more we can avoid the police being involved in these types of situations, the more we can avoid people getting um, killed, not just killed, but injured or hurt because the person involved just did not, didn't know how to handle it. You know, they just weren't trained for it. So, you know, I don't blame them for it. They just, (laughs) that wasn't, that's not the job of of a uh, police officer. But, you know, too many times we just, we take whatever we don't want to deal with. And we just say, we can let the police handle it. And I think this is one of those things that we're now saying, okay, maybe you should take this off their plate. <laughs> but we'll move on here and go to our next story uh, where we got some sad news. Not a lot of sad news on the show today, but some sad news that uh, the Black News Channel has pulled the plug after the two-year-old venture failed to meet payroll and lost the backing of its biggest investor. Um, Prince O'Hare, who is the company's uh, president and CEO, told employees Friday in the memo that the news network was ceasing live production and would file for bankruptcy. So being Black, the Black News Channel or BNC was available in some 50 million homes with cable and satellite, but had failed to attract many viewers. And the network was founded in 2020 by former GOP Congressman J.C. Watts, and he hired more than 250 Black journalists and production personnel last year in a relaunch following an investment by Jacksonville Jaguars owner Shad Shad Khan. And so the the end came even as BNC recorded its biggest audience ever this week with this live coverage of the Judiciary Committee hearing for the U.S. Supreme Court nominee, Judge Katan G. Brown Jackson. So sad to hear that, Adrian. I know we, you know, we even sourced the Black News Channel for some of the news that we talk about here on the show. So we were definitely sad to see them go, but I think it just underscores um, just how difficult it is to get in and want to get into the media space, but to also be able to thrive in it. Um, and so it's sad to see it goes because it was doing a necessary uh, service, something we desperately need, which is more black, you know, black owned, black controlled news stations. Which it, it makes what we do more relevant more needed and more important listeners for you to continue to follow along with what we're doing to help us grow because Devin and I have a vision to be like, you know, the black news channel 
but to be at a different level to where we actually can stick in a brute within our own community uh, and do our own thing for a long, long, long time. So make sure you keep listening to us, listeners. Uh, we're not done with this episode either. We got some more stuff to cover. We got our funny quick hit. So we'll be right back. Stick with us. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, IG and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So let's get into our quick hits, which is our favorite part of the show. If you didn't know, now you know. Um, But to start off, we're going to go to Idaho and talk about the Idaho Potato Commission, which announced that it is celebrating Valentine's Day and the state signature crop with a limited edition product, potato perfume. That is right. You heard that right. Potato perfume. The IPC said the fragrance, Frights by Idaho, Frights by Idaho is made from distilled Idaho potatoes and essential oils and is designed to smell like a fresh plate of French fries. So so whether you're at a drive-thru restaurant or dining in, it's near impossible to not grab a fry and take a bite before you dive into your meal. The smell is too good to resist. And this is, we're quoting the president of the uh, Idaho Potato Commission, uh, Jamie Higgum. And he said, also, this perfume is a great gift for anyone who can't refuse a French fry. So the commission said the $1.89 bottles of fragrance sold out quickly on the IPC website, but social media users can still enter an incident contest to win free bottles. So, uh, Adrian, you know, I like, I really love French fries. I really like them. Uh, I believe McDonald's has the best French fries around. I oh, don't now. think I've. I don't think I wait. What do you mean? Well, now wait. I, I, I could, I could, I could tell you two places more but two places that are fast food that that have better fries than mcdonald's one that would absolutely surprise you because i did not know that their fries were this good but so the two best fries in the fast food industry one raleigh's two kfc honestly i would say they're they're neck and neck i don't know if you've ever had kfc I don't know if you've ever had KFC's fries, but they're like a thick cut seasoned fry. They're, they're really like I'm like they're, they're bet like McDonald's. Is, McDonald's is good, but I would say even Wendy's is better than McDonald's. So, man, oh, some some nicely seasoned, somewhat heavily seasoned fries from McDonald's when they're fresh. That's hard to beat, man. I'm sorry. I've had <laughs> KFC fries I think once, and they were good. They were good, but you know, ah. Riley's is definitely the best. I, I mean, Riley's, I know, okay. I know, the, I know, I, I know. Your quick hit isn't about fries, but Riley's is definitely I mean, is. Riley's checkers. They're, they're definitely like the best. Okay, fry. like it's okay. I, I I agree because I know checkers. See, we had a checkers. We didn't have okay, a Riley's. Yeah, same thing. But yeah. same. Okay, yes, I agree. They do have the best fries, and then McDonald's is like one B. One A. I mean, you could say number two for me. 
I I agree. I will see that KFC. Cause I put Wendy's over KFC. <laughs> That's just me. But you know, moral of the story, listeners. I don't want to smell like a bag of French fries or a plate of French fries. I'm not interested in ever smelling like that. Hopefully, you aren't either. Uh, ladies, don't plan on you know taking a couple uh, you know spritz of the the fry perfume and taking that. Uh, home and, and telling your man like hey baby look at the new perfume i got it smells like potatoes <laughs> like, you know it's a hard pass <laughs> whenever i saw the price uh for a dollar and 89 i was like i'll just use that to go buy some fries and just you know eat and smell rather than just <laughs> spray it on myself you know that's i'll just go to rallies and checkers yeah just just get some fries you know but (laughs) we'll go to another uh quick hit uh my uh, first quick hit here uh tiktoker chibazo ijumarov i i don't know um professionally known as simone jackson i could say that was fired after videos of him moving into his downtown seattle cubicle at work went viral In his video that has over 12 million views, Jackson unravels his belongings from inside his suitcases and puts them away in shelves and drawers. During his staycation, Jackson created various videos showing viewers his daily routine before and after work, documenting his sleep arrangement under his desk, food hacks involving his favorite pineapples and ham for his viewers. He had his lady followers asking for pajama onesies, fashion advice, Jackson even used facility showers and towels to say squeaky clean. The live-in protest lasted a short four days and three nights before Jackson's employer, uh, Arcadius, caught on to his videos and asked him to take them down. In a recent TikTok video, Jackson said he was fired over his refusal to remove his videos and was not fired over living in the office. Quote, I've gotten so many views now, so maybe I can take that and work on building my brand. I can always find another job if that doesn't work out. And those are Jackson's words. You know, Devin, that's interesting. It's like, I, I you know, I know, you know, there's a lot to unpack, but I like, I almost feel like I want to discuss this because it's so crazy. Cause it's like, I almost feel like I need to just go do something crazy and go viral and then build a brand. Cause it's just like, you know, it's just funny <laughs> that this is the thing that, you know, you know, most people would be like, you know, what, what was the point of even doing all this? But his point was like, Hey, I got 12 million views for something and I'm going to use that. So I'm just like, you know, when I read it, I was like, this is funny. Or rather when I read the headline, I was like, this guy is stupid for getting fired for doing this. But then as you read into it, I'm like, oh, man, I mean, this guy might be yeah. a marketing genius or something. <laughs> I mean, I mean, he definitely captured people's attention. The only thing about that is being able to sustain it. You know, that's the hard part. That's where the work comes in. And building a brand and he's right i mean you can always in this job market you can always go find another job there's another job out there so at least right now workers do have the upper hand but you know i'm not surprised the company must like take it down i mean i don't know if he thought that they weren't going to ever see it but i mean i guess he didn't because somebody just assumes it's going to go viral and get 12 million views but um yeah, I mean, it definitely makes you want to go do something like that so you can get paid and start, you know, building a brand, as they say, um, and start getting some endorsements. But 
we'll move on to our next story where a North Carolina dog was dumped at a shelter by his owners because he humped another male dog and the owners feared he was gay has been adopted. Yes, you heard that correct. The people dumped their dog at the dog shelter because they thought he was gay. And now the Stanley County Animal Protective Services in uh, Albert Marl posted on Facebook Tuesday that the dog, his name is Fesco, has found new, new humans to love him for who he is pelvic gyrations and all. The shelter also confirmed to Huffington Post that the dog's new owners are Steve Nichols and his longtime partner, John, who spoke to TMZ on Tuesday about why they welcomed the very friendly pooch into their home. The couple said they renamed Fesco to Oscar after the Irish poet and playwright Oscar Wilde, who was gay. So Oscar hasn't been neutered and has heartworms. Oscar's new owners, along with their their other dog, Harry, intend to nurse the pup back to health. So how ridiculous is that, Adrian, for somebody to drop the dog off at the shelter because he they thought he was gay? Like, it could have been a one-time deal, but how sensitive do you have to be <laughs> to get rid of your dog who you think is gay? Like, imagine people like that and how they treat people who actually are gay, actual humans. <laughs> I know when I saw that story, I was like, that's ridiculous that they would even, you know, do something like that. Uh, but I'm so glad that, that, you know, this story, you know, you know, I'm so glad that we're in a world of social, social media. I'm sure they probably saw this story and was just captivated by it. And was like, we've got to go and do something because all dogs yeah. need homes. I mean, it's come on. I, I, I definitely have a source uh, on a sore, but a sweet spot for, uh, dogs and even cats now are starting to grow on me. So they 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 don't deserve you know being abandoned. No one does, even if you're a human. No. So, um, so another little interesting story. Keeping in the world of animals, I wish we were doing a, a video uh, episode uh, for you to see this, but just go check it out. Go watch. It's a pretty cool video. Uh, California man enjoying uh, a corned beef sandwich in his car captured video when a trio of hungry bear cubs approached his vehicle and opened the door twice. Bill Duvall said he was in a car with his dog in Sierra Madre and had on St. Patrick's Day a corned beef sandwich in his lap when the bear cubs appeared nearby. Bill captured video as the cubs approached his car and immediately attempted to open the door. The bears managed to open the door two times, but both times Bill was able to quickly close it before they could reach inside. Bill's wife, Sandy, said bears are frequent visitors in the neighborhood. You know, Devin, I saw this and I was like, dang, <laughs> you know, like, Bill, yeah, lock your else. doors if you're going to just, you know, if you're just going to sit in the parking lot and, you know, if bears are approaching me, I would just lock my doors. I'm like, you know, I mean, because surely they're not able to get through the locked door. I'm like, clearly Bill didn't lock his door. He did not. Bill, Bill, was, <laughs> Bill did it all wrong. Your first instinct should be to lock the door. I mean, that's like step one. But I mean, the fact that they open it not once but twice has let you know these bears ain't playing with y'all. Like, they are not playing. We We did a story... I think it might have been some weeks ago about the bears breaking into people's houses. I think it may have been Colorado or something. Um, but, you know, the, the bears are very friendly out in California and in the West. So, mm -hmm. you know, warning for you listeners, if you ever plan to go to California or other parts, 
uh, of the western part of the country, just make sure you be on the lookout because you might have some visitors you may you probably didn't expect. Um, and sometimes they don't take no for an answer. <laughs> so, but we'll move on to our next story here, uh, where Pusha T has joined into the feud between Arby's and McDonald's, and he's now dropped a diss track, and it's actually called a spicy fish diss track, and it's blasting McDonald's and its classic filet of fish sandwich. So Pusha T actually in the song, he takes he's taking credit for writing McDonald's ubiquitous. I'm loving it, Jingle, claiming, quote, I'm the reason the whole world loved it. Now I got to crush it. Back in 2016, representatives of Pusha T confirmed to Rolling Stone that the rapper worked in collaboration with his brother Malice, otherwise known by his stage name, No Malice, to create the Jingle. And they worked alongside Pharrell Williams and Justin Timberlake to produce the three-minute, 42-second tune that customers have all come to know and love. And so. Pusha T and, Ma- and No Malice were only compensated about a million dollars compared to Timberlake's alleged six million dollars. So Pusha T penned a diss track to clap back at McDonald's over their alleged failure to reimburse him fairly for his work in creating their I'm Loving It jingle. So this diss track is great, honestly. So if you have some time, just Google Pusha T Arby's diss track. It's actually pretty funny. Um, and so the song features lines targeting McDonald's fish sandwich, including you should be disgusted. How dare you sell a square fish asking us to trust it? A half slice of cheese, Mickey D's on a budget, end quote. Um, so he compares the sandwich to that of Arby's saying, quote, Arby's crispy fish is simply it with lines around the corner. We might need a guest list. So that's as much rapping as you're going to hear from me on the show. I promise you. Uh, we made it through it. <laughs> I wrapped two lines. It was it was brutal, but and nevertheless, there is a now fish sandwich wars here, Adrian. At first, it was a chicken sandwich wars. Now we have the fish sandwich wars, and now we've got a dish track from Arby's talking about McDonald's. It is actually a pretty funny video. I'm not gonna lie. Um, it's worth a listen. And a, and a watch. <laughs> I'll listen and watch the video, but I will not participate in the fish sandwich war because uh, most of them just I I mean I love a fish sandwich, but it's got to be like actual fish, like that. Like don't give me no mince meat fish or want to be fish, right? Don't give me no frozen patty fish. Give me a catfish fillet or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, like yeah, I'll even take some whiten's fish or something like. Give me like you know fillet, but same um, same way. And I'll say too, let's not disrespect the fillet o fish from McDonald's. Okay, like it's a classic. I personally like it. It's the only sandwich I've ever eaten where it was fish and cheese on the same sandwich and tartar sauce. It actually, you know, it actually is to me a good sandwich. I don't eat anything from Arby's. I'm sorry, a spicy fish sandwich does does not sound appetizing for my stomach so i'm gonna pass but the dish track was awesome but i'm not going to arby's sorry i'm, I'm like you <laughs> yeah i haven't i haven't had the um the the, the fisher fillet so maybe maybe it's something it's good. maybe i gotta put it on my list or something i don't know um but you know, speaking, you know, <laughs> food and all that kind of stuff, let's let's go to something else with food. This is, you know, I guess something you can, you know, learn is not, you know, something you shouldn't do. 
Uh, police in Ohio are reminding the public not to call 911 about their fast food disputes after a woman uses emergency number to complain about her KFC order. The Usit Police Department said Chargrin Valley Dispatcher 911 received a call on Tuesday from a woman who told the dispatcher she did not receive enough chicken at the KFC drive through The woman said she had paid for eight pieces of chicken but only received four. The dis- <laughs> I was trying to hold it together, but it's just so comical, listeners. Um, the dispatcher advised a woman that her problem was a silver matter that should be discussed with the store manager, but the woman insisted on an officer being sent to the scene. The department said an officer arrived at the eatery and told the woman there was nothing he could do about her issue. <laughs> Police Chief Scott Myers said the situation should serve as a reminder to the public not to use 911 for non-emergency issues. Quote, while we're here to serve the public, an incorrect drive through order is not a police matter. Unquote. Meyer told WJWTV. You know, <laughs> then when I saw this, I was just okay. like, gosh, like, you know, I've been really mad at restaurants, but I've never thought about calling the cops on them. <laughs> 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 it's never risen to that level of uh you know to, that i needed to call it never been that bad i've been pretty pissed off a couple times and i wanted to call it you know i mean they may have to call the police on me when i get there but i've never just called them about you know hey man they, they shorted me about four pieces because <laughs> what, what, what they two- gonna do <laughs> Go back and be like, give her her chicken. <laughs> like, come on, man. What are you doing? I'm just surprised that they actually sent an officer. Like, I, this is this is actually a very committed police department, you know, committed Has to helping. Because um, I, if I were a police chief, I, would, I wouldn't have sent anybody. If I was at dispatch, I would have been like, um, no. Going on back <laughs> up there. That's the only thing I can tell you. Call yeah. the store directly. Who's the store manager? Like, talk to him. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I mean, just the, I don't know. I would I would never have that thought cross my mind to call the police. That's like getting, the, you know, the wrong pizza and being like, hey, you know, calling the police department, like, they brought me the wrong pizza. <laughs> like, what? Like, no, ma'am. Like, what do you want the police officer to do? Go get you four pieces of chicken, bring it back to you? Like, come on. Right. Not DoorDash. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> But I guess we'll end on on that note. We still ended up talking about KFC after all. Um, KFC and some other brands on the show. So we had the fish sandwich wars. We had the fried debate. Um, you be the judge and let us know <laughs> on social media. <laughs> You'll be eating Arby's or McDonald's. Um, or if you believe Riley's does have the best fries um, in the nation. So we're going to wrap up our quick hits here. And when we come back, we're going to wrap up the show overall and let you know what is upcoming. We got some really good stuff coming to you, listeners. So make sure you stick with us and stay with us. And we'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to a scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, become a monthly patron. Go to blackagendapod.com and click the donate tab or click donate under the timestamps as you're listening to the podcast. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. 
All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's go ahead and wrap up this episode. It's been so fun delivering the news, been funny, our commentary. We love doing our weekly roundup. Like Devin said, it is probably our favorite show that we do each week. But sometimes those educational academic shows, they do uh, come through just like our upcoming episode. It's entitled, Does SCOTUS Really Matter? You know, we always like to give you a preview into what we're going to be doing later in the future. And we think this is a very, very timely episode to talk about the power and the history of of the Supreme Court, as well as talk about the nominee, Judge Brown. Um, so make sure you stick with us for that one. We're going to actually have two guests, so we're going to have more of a panel discussion. So that's going to be exciting. That's going to be March 29th. Make sure you come back for that one. Our next weekly roundup, weekly roundup number 11, we're going to be back with you next Saturday, April the 2nd. You'll catch us then, and we're going to actually have a new charity of the month because it's a new month. So that means a new organization to rep and talk about. But like I said, next weekly roundup number 11 is going to be coming to you on next Saturday, April the 2nd. We always like to remind you, yes, you can listen to us. Yes, you can like and share and follow and all that good stuff. But donating is something that is huge and something that is very, very important. And I always like to remind you, listeners, you're donating to a cause. You're donating to a movement. You're donating to Devin and myself so that we can build our organization. We're not just trying to be a podcast only platform. We're trying to build and grow. When we talked about the Black News Channel closing and shutting down, we want to be that Black News Channel. We know that we have the capability of doing that. We just need you. We just need you to be those excited donors, those excited patrons who are sticking with us all the way through. All you got to do is go to our website. It's blackagendapod.com. Or right now, just scroll down in the timestamps. There's a donate button right there that you can click on too. When you click on there, it's going to take you to our patron page where you'll be able to donate on a monthly basis and you'll get something back. So donate, get something back. Know that you're making the world a better place. Like I said, that's blackagendapod.com or scroll down in the timestamps and click the donate tab. Now, we've been talking about the Common Ground Foundation all month long, so we're going to keep talking about them for our charity of the month. They empower and uplift youth from high potential communities to become future leaders. They have a variety of programs from character development to civic engagement to health and wellness, even generational wealth, entrepreneurship, creative expression, and leadership. Founded by entertainer Common and his mom, Common Ground Foundation provides a holistic curriculum that encourages youth to achieve academic excellence while inspiring them to realize their dreams and create an impact in the world. They come to them as dreamers and emerge as dreamers and believers. So really, really awesome mission there. Go check them out. Like I said, that's the Common Ground Foundation. We always like to remind you now that we have these going on now, our news articles, you know, our, our journalist interns are producing some amazing stories. Honestly, I've been learning because there's a lot of things that I keep up with, but there's some things I don't. So our, our journalists have been really enlightening me and I hope they've been enlightening you. All you have to do is go to black agenda pod forward slash news and you'll see our voice, which is our way to deliver you news from our journalists interns so that you can see what's going on around you outside of the mainstream media. So we really, really like being able to do that for you. Remember, you can like, follow and share all that we do. 
whether it's an episode, a post, or article, it doesn't matter. You can like, follow, share, and uh, put all of that stuff out there. Our handle is at Black Agenda Pod. Again, that's at Black Agenda Pod. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We even have a YouTube channel, so make sure you check all that out. Lastly, thank you for sticking with us throughout this entire episode. Man, it is, or I guess I shouldn't say that because you could be female, but it's super, super exciting to talk to you every week. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, listeners, it it truly is a a magical moment that we have with you. Uh, We can't wait till we have more opportunities to bring you the news and episodes and conversations. We can't wait till we're on a major platform where you'll be able to tune in to us daily, weekly, whatever the case might be. So make sure you keep tuning in. We're going to get there. We're excited and we thank you for everything you're helping us to do. So like I said, we'll be back with you on Tuesday, March 29th to talk about SCOTUS and next Saturday for weekly roundup number 11. Until then, we'll catch you next time. 